Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. Good morning. Uh, I just want to say from the start, if you were at the kickball tournament yesterday, whether attending or participating, you have my full permission to fall asleep during the sermon, I might do the same. If you weren't there, then unfortunately you have to stay awake. But if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 21 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to meet me there and read along. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper! And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Psalm 111.1 says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Father, we come together this morning and we praise you with our whole heart. With whatever our heart has carried in here this morning, we praise you with it still. So we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We cry out with the father who asked for his daughter to be healed. We believe, yet help our unbelief. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we're all familiar with the idiom that apple does not fall far from the tree. Generally, this is said when we see a child who acts, walks, or talks in a similar fashion uh, that resembles the parent. Uh, children are wonderful imitators. I mean, I don't think it's uh, you know coincidence that Jesus said that our faith ought to be childlike, not in the sense that we should not know what to do or um, you know be naive, but in the sense that children ask questions and children's watch and gaze and imitate. And so, uh, when I was younger, I found myself doing everything my dad did. Uh, my dad played basketball and football, and so I wanted to play basketball and football. Uh, my dad wore his hat backwards, and so I wanted to wear my hat backwards. Uh, my dad chewed his nails, and so I started chewing my nails. Uh, I just thought he was the coolest guy ever, and, and so thankfully I've dropped the bad habits and have inherited some of the good, um, but it still stands. Whenever we see somebody acting like their parent, looking like their parent, we always refer to that as the apple did not fall far from the tree. And some of you see this playing out in your own lives um, as you look at your own children, and you look at them, and you see a little tiny reflection of yourself. Well, this morning, our passage, Paul is going to be calling for the churches to be little reflections of God. Paul, in other words, Paul says in the first verse, therefore be imitators of God. He's saying, do not let the apple fall far from the tree. When we look at the churches... Right? When Paul writes to the churches in Asia Minor, he is saying each and every single one of you should be little tiny reflections of God. And that's the main thrust. That is Paul's message to the churches in Ephesus, and that's Paul's message to us this morning at Faith Community Church, is that we are to be reflections of God. The church of God is called to be reflections of God, to reflect Him. Too often, our churches today seek to look like other churches or look like other successful uh, business models or we try to replicate methods or we try to even worse look like the culture in the world and see what they're doing and how we can adopt it into the church so that they might come and look at us a little bit more. All the while, the Word of God is saying, look to God, reflect God. Reflect Him and reflect Him only, even if that earns you 10 members. Reflect God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so Paul's call this morning is to be imitators, to be little children when it comes to how we live out our salvation. And, and he gives us uh, three pursuits to give ourselves to in order to feel the call of reflecting God in our lives. And the first pursuit that Paul gives us here in verses 1 through 2 verses 1 through 6, rather, the church reflects God when we give ourselves to the pursuit of love. That's the first pursuit that Paul gives us. He begins, therefore, be imitators of God. There's the call, as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says the, way, the first way that you imitate or reflect God the best is when you give yourself to the pursuit of love. He uses the verb walk in love. And we've seen that all throughout the book of Ephesians. You were once walking in darkness in chapter 2, and now as children of God who have been uh, saved by God, called by God for his glory, for good works, are now to walk 
in love towards one another. And so the question would arise naturally uh, is, is what is love? Well, what is this love that we're supposed to give ourselves to when it comes to one another? How do we best work this out? And the best our culture, with its sophisticated philosophical and progressive elite status, can come up with is love is love. So you can't look to the culture in order to walk in love towards one another because the culture can't even define it. God, in his word here, defines what love is and how that's supposed to play out in the local churches. And he, he, so he qualifies the love in verse 2. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. And that love is not left to our own imagination or our own interpretation, but is found throughout the pages of Scripture and finds its ultimate expression in the person and work of Jesus. You know, if Paul just said walk in love towards one another, our own tendencies to, would be to qualify that love with our own capacity to be able to love one another. It would be qualified by our own opinions and how much someone else shares my opinion or my preference or whatever it might be or my theological persuasion. But Paul says the way you ought to give yourself to love is to give yourself up. The way, the kind of love that Paul is calling the churches in Asia Minor to demonstrate is a self-giving love. And we know that because he says, you're to love one another as Christ uh, loved and gave himself up of. I mean, think about, think about all that Jesus gave up to demonstrate love. Uh, think about everything he left behind. Uh, I mean... He gave up being in the presence of his Father. The glory that he had with his Father from all eternity, Jesus gave up. And we see that when he prays in John 17, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before time began. And we know that he, so he gave up glory and he gave up being in the presence of his Father. He gave up the security and lofty setting of the throne room. Some of us wouldn't even give up AC for one another. or even to gather with one another. And yet Jesus gives up the setting of the throne. He gives up his own safety. He makes himself dependent upon uh, Mary and Joseph. He becomes a baby. He gives up his maturity. He gives up um, everything that he is. He gives up control of the outcome of his life to the will of the Father. And not only that, he, gives up his, he gave up his beauty. Because Isaiah prophesies about him in Isaiah 53 too, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The one who is the most beautiful, the one who designed all that is beautiful, good, right, and true, gave up that beauty in order for us to know and to see love. And so Paul says, this is how you ought to love as Christ loved, by giving yourself up by washing the feet of the saints. And not only that, but Paul says this kind of love is not only self-giving, uh, but it's sacrificial, and he likens it to Old Testament sacrifice. You see there in verse 2, uh, he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That means the love that Jesus demonstrated for his people was 
all-sufficient, was all-pleasing. And so the model of our love should be based on the model of Jesus' love, which is self-sacrifice, costly, uh, and pleasing to God. In other words, loving one another can be messy and difficult and even painful. This is not a high-in-the-sky, sentimental view of love that Paul has in mind. What what Paul is saying here to the churches is you're supposed to love in all that comes with it. All that came with Jesus' love. I mean, you you have to think about it. Jesus prayed in the garden prior because Jesus knew what type of love that he was about to demonstrate to the whole world. Jesus knew exactly what kind of love he was about to work out in his life for the sake of his people. And so, you know, he even prays in the garden, Father, if there's another way that this can be done, please remove the cup from me. If there's any way else, if there's any way we can do this other than the sacrifice and the suffering and the pain that I'm going to have to go through, if we can do it any other way, Lord, let it be that way. And yet, for the joy that was set before him, the author of Hebrews says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so this love that we, that we are called to, that we're obligated to, because we've been recipients of such great love, we are then to pour out towards one another in our churches, in our homes, in our communities, and everywhere that we are. We're to give that kind of love out. That is the definition of love. So if God is love, and God's love is most demonstrated and expressed in the personal work of Jesus, then there only is one type of true love, and that is the one we see on the cross. There is only one definition of love, and it is God himself most expressed in Christ. So more than love being a feeling or a philosophical category or whatever uh, our generation to the uh, one generation deems it, uh, we see that love is self-giving, love is an offering, and love is a sacrifice. And we find all of that in him who gave himself up for us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that it is no longer he who lives, but he lives by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for him. And so here's what that means for us. If the church is to reflect God by the way we give ourselves to the pursuit of love, that means we're going to have to give up a few things. We're going to have to, if we're going to love in the way that that the Bible calls us to love, it means sometimes giving up control. That means you might not have a say in everything that happens in the local church. You might not have your own preference exalted or moved against because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love, real biblical love, does not insist on its own way. So we might have to get, uh, loving is not controlling. It means sometimes in the name of love, in the name of Christ-centered love, we give up our rights. And that's very difficult for, for us In our culture, in our society, in the place that we're born, we are all about our own rights. And yet the Bible, time and time and again, says, hey, love your your neighbor, love your fellow church member, love the flock of God, love the people who God has redeemed and died and bought with his blood, and love them in such a way where your rights take second place, where your voice takes second 
place, where your preferences take second place. We have gone through this all throughout the book of Ephesians, is that the church gathered, the church as a body is elevated above the individual. Remember back in chapter 1 where Paul outlines this amazing salvation that is from God alone, and we are only the recipients who've responded to that love. He says the Father has adopted you into the family. That means that you're not an only child in the church of God, and God's plan is bigger than you yourself and I. And so all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been highlighting this one true thing, that the church, it is about the church of God. And Paul says to reflect God, to be little children of God, means to love as God loved primarily through the person of Jesus. And then he goes in verse 3, he kind of, it seems like an abrupt break in the thought of Paul here, because he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verses 4 through 6, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All right, I don't, so my first thoughts as I was looking through this passage, and maybe that's coming up in your mind, is what does sexual immorality and all of that have to do with loving each other the way that Christ has loved his bride? Well, here's the first thing that we should just point out. Paul, this is not some off-the-cuff thought that Paul's just all of a sudden bringing up. Um, Paul is pointing out that there's a type of love, or there's a type of, um, type of well, that's really what it is. It's a, it's a type of love. There's a worldly love that's all about what you can get and all about you. And that's primarily expressed in sexual immorality. Because look how Paul describes it. He says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or even crude joking, which are out of place. Let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this. And this is how he describes, he's got words in verse 5. He likens sexual immorality to idolatry and covetousness in verse 3. So the primary root that Paul is getting at here is that, um, that this kind of love is rooted in idolatry and covetousness that seeks your own gain. It seeks your own gain. It takes somebody or yourself as the creation and swaps it for the glory of the creator. Somebody else, something else, whether it's your own flesh, your own desires, your own pleasures, become the primary uh, centerpiece. You become the center of all that is. And, and you might be asking, like, well... I, how do, how do we know that sexual immorality is confused with love? Well, I think you just have to turn on the news and you have to pay attention to the culture because in any time, and it's not even just our culture. Remember, Paul is writing to churches in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, which was home to the great temple of Artemis, who was the fertility god, goddess, right? And so, and part of the worship in the temple of the fertility goddess included what Paul is describing here, sexual immorality, and it was a religion 
right? This, this worship to this deity that had to do with love, and it was completely void of what true love was. And so it was easy for the, for the communities in Ephesus and the territories of Asia Minor to confuse love with Artemis here. And so Paul is essentially saying the kind of love you're supposed to be demonstrating to one another is rooted in Jesus and not in Artemis. The kind of love that's rooted in Artemis, do you want to know what that kind of love is? It's idolatry and it's covetousness and it, and it looks at somebody else as some, someone that belongs to you. You think about sexual immorality, what do, you, what do you tend to think about? You tend to think about, well, somebody wanted somebody else in a way that was in a violation of God's law and God's covenant and God's love and they took. All sexual immorality, all of this kind of things that we think is love, Paul says is not love, and it's self-seeking and taking, and it's rooted in self. And he, and he goes so far as to even say that this kind of love, that this kind of taking and greed and this idolatry and this covetousness must not even be named among you. That word for sexual immorality in verse 3 is the Greek pornea. And it's kind of an umbrella term. Meaning that we, it covers all types of sexual immorality outside the covenant of marriage, the covenant of God's ordained goodness. So that means... Because some of you, because some of some of us think about this. Here's the thing: we look at this and we think about immediately what our culture celebrates for a whole month, right? We think of sexual immorality. We think of okay, homosexuality, which is a violation of God's covenant, is a violation of God's law, and is uh, sinful in the sight of God. But you know what else is just as sinful in the sight of God? Cohabitation. And yet. We're okay with that in the church. We're okay with that kind of love. Two people not married living together. Well, it's fine as long as they love each other. As long as they're in love. As long as they found their person. Paul is pointing this out here in verses 3 through 6 because it is easy for us to equate something with love that is not love. Divorce outside of the biblical grounds that Jesus gave. To be with somebody else because you fell out of love. Is not, that's Artemis love. Right? So Paul is basically trying to form this community here, right? That is rooted in a sacrificial love. And that should show up in our sexual ethic. That should show up in our marriages, the way we uphold marriage, not just with the sexual, not with the homosexuality versus the heterosexuality. It's also uh, how do we communicate to one another what is true love? Because we can take any sin and we can do it and we can justify it and we can allow it in our congregations in the name of love. Well, if these two don't want to be married anymore because they're not in love, shouldn't they? Shouldn't they go be happy and be in love? No. No, they shouldn't. They should give themselves up because it's not about them and because this should not be named among the saints. It's incredible how many Christians 
how many followers of Jesus, especially in my age group, who are, this right here is the most justified thing in their life. There's so many people who call themselves Christians and yet uh, will, not, um, will not abide by a, a love ethic that's rooted in Jesus, the creator. And this comes from verses 1 through 2, knowing what Christ-centered love is. And so when, when, when Paul says to love one another and then comes in in verses 3 through 6, six talking about sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness, what he's doing is he's saying, look, there's no room for love to be defined by you. There is no room for love to be defined by you. Whether it's relationships uh, in the church, uh, whether it is relationships in your own life, Love is defined by Jesus, the creator. And that's the kind of love we're to give ourselves up to. Not a, a I saw, I, it was pleasing to me, and so I took. So I think verses 3 through 6 emphasizes and contrasts verses 1 through 2. And it lays out the groundwork for how the church is supposed to uphold this word love. Because sometimes it's, it's difficult for us as a church in the culture that we're into, when we, when we have a point like this, uh, the church reflects God when we give ourselves to the pursuit of love. It's easy for us to think of that word, uh, that love word, as shallow and thin and flabby. And the only reason why we've done that is because we hear day in and day out, not only from the culture, but from other churches and the way that believers live their lives, that love is thin, flabby, and empty. That's why Paul says, uh, let no one in verse 6 deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And you, redeemed by Jesus, in Jesus, if you fit into verses chapter 1 through, 1 through 14, you are now sons of God, daughters of God. And so for this to be part of your lifestyle, for love to be any less than the fullness of Jesus to be the fullness of who God is, is to diminish that love and to take away from that love and blaspheme that love. So if you're going to be committed to giving yourselves to love, you're committed to Christ and his definition of it and his demonstration of it. So that's the first pursuit that the Apostle Paul gives us that we should be giving ourselves to in order to reflect God And the second pursuit that the Apostle Paul calls us to in order to reflect God is to give ourselves to the pursuit of light, verses 7 through 14. Uh, Paul moves from his exhortation to walk in love and contrasts a biblical Christ love with a selfish love. And then he says in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. In other words, don't partake in it. Don't let it be named among you. Don't partake in it. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul says, Walk as children of light. Uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. All throughout Ephesians, Paul's theme, this whole theme in Ephesians from darkness to light has been running from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. We were uh, walking in darkness. We were enslaved to the darkness. We were um, living out our lives according to the darkness. And now Paul takes it a step further in chapter 5 and says you not only were walking in darkness and under the kingdom of darkness, but you yourself were darkness. You were darkness. And then Paul says, uh, takes it another step further and says, but now you are light in the Lord. So it's not only that you have a light in you uh, that Paul is saying here, or that you are children of the light, because he's already said that, but you in the Lord are light. So in other words, walk as, as those who are the light. To walk in practice, verses 3 through 6, as a habitual way of life is to go against the new nature Jesus has created in you that is of himself. It's to walk contrary to the light is to walk contrary to your new nature in Jesus. So this is not just a uh, do good for goodness sake. It's do good because Jesus has created something new in you. And so walk in the light of who you now are. In chapters 1 through 3, we have been taught that we have been radically changed uh, if our faith has been put in the Son of God. And because of this great change, our lives are ordered differently. What you'll see in the, uh, the writings of Paul, especially in Ephesians, is you see this pattern playing out. That the first half is all gospel truth, and the second half is how we live out this life in light of that gospel truth. And so what we're, we're in the practical end of things here in Ephesians, and what Paul is saying is that in light of chapters 1 through 3, now live this way. Live this way. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So instead of partaking taking in the world's activities, we are to expose them. We are to be radically different. We're supposed to be light. Our works are supposed to be different and point to someone different and our words and our lifestyle and things that we value, the, church, the new community that God has created in Jesus should be radically different. So instead of the church looking to the world on how we can get the world in here, uh, the world ought to be looking at us trying to figure out how they can get in. And that just comes by us being light. It comes by us walking in a very different way, speaking in a very different way. And Paul says here that uh, because you are light, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So where should you be found? If the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, then that means we as believers, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be found in all that is good and right and true. We should not be found in uh, 
in all that is unright, untrue, ungodly, uh, and found in darkness because our nature has been radically changed. We're a new creation in Christ. And so he says that the fruit of light is found. And so if the fruit of light, then the people of light also too should be found in all that is good and right and true. Then he says in verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So Paul says, not only are you light, but you're called to expose the light. So how do we expose the light? Do we post on social media about how bad the world is? And do we form small groups uh, to talk about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Do we talk to our coworkers? Do we talk to our family members and just say, man, things are awful. The world, world is evil. People are evil. Uh, this, there's just no hope for the world. I don't think that's the way that Paul meant for the church to be light or Jesus meant for his people to be light. Have you ever turned on the lights in your... Um, in your house, you probably have. That's a really silly question to ask. Uh, but have you ever turned the light on in a room and all of a sudden you found yourself uh, watching a wrestling match between the light and the darkness? You ever like turn the lights on and started seeing darkness start to struggle against the, the bright light that's in the room that's shining everything in the room? You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy? Because of course not. No, you've never seen darkness try to beat light. uh, Because as soon as light just shows up, darkness is just gone. Darkness is exposed. Darkness doesn't have any dominion or power or control wherever light is. And so Paul um, is echoing Jesus' words in John 17 when he says, uh, expose the darkness. He's meaning just be in the world. Be in the spaces that are difficult. Be in the spaces that are dark. And you should be ready. Your words and your actions and all that you are should just make a difference. You should be able to step in. We should be in South Boston as a church, as individual people, part of the bride of Christ, and we should just be making a difference by our mere presence. We should just, people should just be able to see that things are different and see things for what they are. Our version of love should look radically different than the love ethic in the world. And people should just know that by the way that we love each other and by the way that we exalt the love of Jesus. And so part of the, Paul's not saying, hey, church at Ephesus, go start exposure ministries. Go ahead and start posting about all the, all the churches in your area. Uh, go ahead and start posting about everything that's happening in the world and, and how everything is horrible and, and Jesus is going to come back and just start setting things straight, which he will. But our job is not to necessarily form little committees and small groups on how bad the world is and, and post on social media about how awful the world is. But our job as people of light is just to go be light. Just be light. Be light as children of light, as those walking in light, and find yourselves in all that's good and right and true. And look, the darkness will be exposed. And, and Paul not only says, uh, there's no specific, uh, you know, is Paul saying, be light by your words or be light by your presence? There's no specific, he's not saying, uh, we're... It's not as though Paul in this, these passages is clear. He has talked about in these passages that our speech does matter. Not to joke and be crude or be filthy by the things that we talk about. 
But sometimes I think believers, uh, you might be thinking, okay, well, I'm light because I, I'm a good guy. I clock in on time every day. I obey, you know, I, I follow what my boss tells me to do. I, I don't really do any bad things. I don't, uh, you know, I, 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 people know I'm different because I just live differently. Well, just because you live morally doesn't mean that there's a message different that they're being communicated. So in other words, uh, yes, live good, but also preach good news. You say, how do I know that? Well, because look at what Paul says. He says he doesn't leave it for us, although he doesn't, he's not specific and explicit about, yes, you preach the gospel and live the gospel. Obviously, to walk in light is to live the gospel and to be in the good, right, and true. But he also says, after he says expose them in verse 11, he says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Okay, so us being present in South Boston, us being present in our workplaces, in our homes, and by being light, that's going to expose darkness for what it is. But then he also says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Which is an awkward way to say that. That's meaning, I mean, because we don't usually shine light on something and it doesn't become light, right? Like, I don't shine the light on the chair and the chair just becomes light or its color changes or anything like that. So what does Paul mean? I think... When he says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here, Paul, most commentators agree that Paul is either quoting an ancient hymn that was sung by the church, or he, it's got echoes of Isaiah 61 about the good news. In other words, Paul says, be light, and anything that becomes visible is light. And then he, there's a hymn, there's an evangelistic hymn that Paul is using. In other words... Part of being light is calling other people to light. Part of being light is to, to, to declare with not only your life, but your lips, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Sleeper was just an idiom uh, to mean dead. And Paul has said in chapter 2 that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. So this Christ hymn, or this Isaiah 61 quotation, whatever one you want to take it as, seems to indicate that the church also has a message to say, not just a life to live. Yes, live your life in a way that reflects the gospel. That's the whole point of chapter 5 right now. But also, speak the gospel. Don't uh, shy away from speaking the gospel. Don't shy away from calling people into the light. Don't be afraid or, or, or fearful of what other people are going to think if you're going to speak the gospel into someone else's life. Because if we really believe the gospel is the only thing that can turn darkness to light, then we're going to say it all the time. We're going to preach it and declare it and share it and teach it whenever an opportunity arises. Now, I'm not saying be obnoxious at work and go to your neighbors and knock on their door like, you know, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. I'm not saying you have to go door knocking, but what I am saying is you should be actively seeking. If you know the world is in a bad condition and if you know your school is in a bad condition and if you know people in your community are in a bad condition, then why not share something that can turn them into light? I mean, the church is filled with people who are really great commentators on the condition of the world, but we are poor gospel heralders. We are poor at bringing good news to bad news because all we want to do is talk about the bad news. And Paul Paul says, it, walk in the light by exposing the darkness, and the way you do that is live differently and speak a good message. Speak good news. Speak Christ crucified. People are going to be like, well, man, you love differently. Yeah, I love differently because my love is based on the crucifixion of Jesus. By the way, can I tell you about that? 
Can I tell you about how, why I love the way I love? Can I tell you why my love ethic is different? Because the love ethic is modeled on the sacrificial, substitutional death of Jesus on the cross. And by the way, he rose from the dead and he offers life. He offers a right relationship reconciled to God. He offers you a way out of that darkness. And so Paul inserts this little hymn by, by, by really modeling for us what our exposure ministry is, just by being light and speaking light. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be a problem in South Boston. Be a problem in your neighborhood and be a problem in your workplaces. I'm not talking about agitate people uh, because we also know in chapter six, we're gonna get to later, it's not against flesh and blood that we wrestle against. We are not, the people that are wrapped up in darkness is not the enemy. It's the darkness that keeps them blind. It's the darkness that they're under control by. And so our task is to go be light and speak light. Be a problem to the darkness. Be a problem to the authorities and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You should be known in that kingdom, not for just leaving that kingdom, but for actively fighting against that kingdom. When Paul uh, in Acts was casting demons out and healing and preaching the gospel, and then when some other fake imitation light tried to do the same thing, they said, in the name of Paul's God of Jesus, I call you out, and the demon looks at him and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? We should not be unknown to the spiritual realms and the kingdom of darkness. We should be known just as Paul is known and just as Christ was known. So the second way... Um, that we reflect God is by giving ourselves to the pursuit of light. And the third way that we, as the church, reflect God is we give ourselves to the pursuit of wisdom. And I'll wrap this up here. Look carefully, verse 15, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another at a reverence for Christ. So that's a lot of text, but here's the point that Paul is saying. He says, give yourselves to the pursuit of wisdom, and wise living looks different than what the world thinks wise living looks like. Wise living is different than what the world considers to be wise with your time. Paul says, make the best use of time because the days are evil. Uh, on the back of one of my watches I have, I have this verse, uh, 5, 15 through 16, engraved on the back. And as a reminder, when I look at the time, it reminds me that the days are evil. And so my time should be spent in the wisdom of God doing the things that God has called us to do. And then part of being that light is right here in these verses too. Part of that living wisely is also part of that pursuing light because Paul says, here's how you use your time. Not in drunkenness, right? Not in spending your time for the weekend waiting to get, you know, waiting to just load up on all the alcohol you can and just, I mean, because that's the reality is, is most people live their lives for Friday and Saturday, right? They clock in. The only thing they have to do is Monday through Friday and then Friday and Saturday is just get loaded with something that can make me feel good. And Paul says, don't spend your time like that. Don't spend your time um, in drunkenness, in foolishness, 
and things that are going to keep you from being fruitful, right? Because we're supposed to be in all that is good, right, and true. But Paul says, here's how you spend your time wisely. Uh, Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, Paul says, "Spend spend your time singing. Spend your time singing. Spend your time singing the gospel. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's not just on a Sunday morning. Because look, if you're just doing that on a Sunday morning, then there are... I'm not a mathematician here, but there's 24 hours in a day, and there's seven days in a week. So you got, you know, two hours out of all the time that you have in a week. And Paul says, spend your time wisely. And so part of that spending your time wisely is singing psalms, hymns, and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So do you spend your time the way that God has called his church to spend his time? Well, how else are we supposed to spend our time? Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks for everything. When? Always. Be a thankful people. And lastly, he says in verse 21, live your lives wisely, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, that verse is in our Bibles. Submit to one another. Because we just came in full circle here. Verse 1 said, love each other as Christ loved us. And verse 21 says, submit to one another. And we can do that because Christ submitted himself to death. Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. Christ submitted himself to uh, human beings who would mock, who would spit, who would beat, and who would flog him, and who would, who would ridicule him and blaspheme the creator of the world. And so Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise. Give yourself to the pursuit of wisdom. In uh, chapter 3, Verse 10, Paul writes, Through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are known to the darkness because of how we spend our time with one another and how we daily go about this Christian walk, this life. We might tend to think that singing and giving thanks and submission to one another is a waste of time or is not doing much, but according to God's word, that is exactly how God's wisdom is being manifested in keeping the gates of hell from prevailing. That's God's church. We sing, we give thanks, we submit, we love. We're light. And that's how Jesus is building his church. It's not the way the world builds organizations and companies. If we're going to be the church, we've got to stop looking at the world. We've got to stop doing something we got to stop being light. Don't expect darkness to turn light into light. Light turns darkness into light. And light is light. If you invite darkness in, darkness, the light goes out. And so, we should be living and reflecting God who is light. And we do this by the grace of Jesus through our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that the call to reflect you is not not rooted in 
and us trying harder. But it, it comes from this life that you've given us. It comes from the light that we are. It comes from this grace that has formed us and made us and, and created us in the likeness of our Creator. For we're your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I pray, Lord, that we would walk in them. For the good of your kingdom and for the glory of your person, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.